Father, you are awesome. We are amazed, even just the glimpses of glory that we see and experience with your presence. It overwhelms us. When we think of who you really are, your incredible power, majesty, we are amazed. You are great, and we are not. So we have gathered here together this morning to praise you, to focus on you, and to hear from you. We know that you have a plan, a plan that works. And we don't. Our plan stinks. But you're amazing. We want to follow you. Help us to hear from your word this morning and about your plan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 7 through 19, page 685 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and we're at this section, uh, the leaders and the leader. Uh, This is actually a longer section than what I normally preach, so I better kind of go fast. What do you think? (laughs) Just kidding. All right. So we're looking at Hebrews 13 verses 7 through 19. But I have a question, okay? Have you ever met someone who said, I think I'm going to go follow Satan today? Anybody? I bet you actually have. Just listen to what I have to say, okay? Uh, If you want to, you can turn, keep your finger in Hebrews 13, but I'm going to read out of 1 Samuel 15, verses 21 and 22. 1 Samuel 15, this is where King Saul has royally blown it, and Samuel is confronting him. And in 1 Samuel 15, this is what he has to say to King Saul. Verse 22, sorry. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Now, he's not saying there's something wrong with the sacrificial system. That was God's provision under the old covenant for the people to receive forgiveness of their sins. So there's, he's not saying that the sacrificial system's bad, but he is saying it's better to obey in the first place instead of sinning and having to offer sacrifice in order to get forgiveness. Does that make sense? Okay, so now, but then he says this because he sees Saul's heart. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. He saw King Saul's heart. It was an unrepentant heart. It was a heart of rebellion. And according to this, it says rebellion is like the sin of divination. That means rebellion is being in league with Satan against God. So we have seen 
that. Perhaps we've done that ourselves. Um, in our day, authority is a bad word, isn't it? Uh, we resist authority in part because we have had bad examples of those abusing authority, and that would be okay, I think, right? That, that's understandable. But also in part, because of our sinful nature, we want to be the boss. That's rebellion. God is the boss. But our society is moving so much more and more towards this idea of being anti-authority. Our passage gives us a healthy example of proper leadership in the church, specifically spiritual leadership. So we follow the God-given leadership as they follow the leader of leaders, Jesus. Now look at our passage. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the camp so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything, and I urge you all the more to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. Here's a passage, a little bit longer. You're wondering, how in the world are you going to get through this today, Larry? Okay, we're going to, okay? But I want you to notice that sandwiched between two passages on yielding to proper authority, he met, notice he started out, remember your leaders. Then he finishes, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. So sandwiched between these two passages on yielding to proper authority we see Jesus in charge. And that's how it all fits together. So let's look at the sandwich, okay? First slice of bread. Remember your leaders. He begins in verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Good leaders share God's word, not their own. That's what we see here. 
Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. I want to read from David Allen's commentary. The reason why they're over here on this bench instead of over here is because in first service I spilt water all over my books and all over the electrical stuff there. I almost electrocuted myself so I wouldn't have been able to preach this second service, but uh, I'm just exaggerating. But, uh, but let me read from David Allen's commentary. He says, their leadership authority derives from the authority of the word. Furthermore, this designation indicates the primacy of the preaching, teaching ministry of the leaders in the local church. The author does not appeal to any other ground of authority rather than the preached word. And so we see here, and I cannot stress enough the importance of expository preaching. Expository preaching is where you read a passage of Scripture and then explain it, but you go through a whole book verse by verse, reading the passage and then explaining it. Uh, Because rather than just giving you my own ideas and my good thoughts and so forth, instead we dig into the Word of God. This is a practice that we see directly found in the Scriptures. I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. By the way, uh, this is an example. Do you know who the third shortest person in the Bible is? Nehemiah. Nehemiah, okay. Nehemiah. Um, You're wondering who the second shortest is, right? Well, that's Bildad the Shuhite. Right? Okay. And, of course, the shortest guy in the Bible is the man who fell asleep on his watch. that's, That's really, really small there. Okay. Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 8. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. This is Ezra's speaking here, and this became the practice in the synagogues. Synagogue began during the exile, and when they returned, they continued that practice. But here's what they did. They would read through a book of the Bible and then explain it. Have to have a good translation, but then explain the meaning. This became the also in the first century, the earliest, the early church just continued the same practice as the Jewish people in the synagogues, which was read a passage of scripture and then explain it going through the different books of the Bible. Once the New Testament books began to be written, they would receive those read it, and then explain it. And that's what's expository preaching. And they did this because of the importance of helping the people of God become mature. 
You become mature when you get to know the Bible yourself and learn what God thinks and how he wants us to live and so forth. Uh, This was very important, we see, in the apostles. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15 gives an explanation of why we needed leaders. The leaders were supposed to equip the followers to do the work, but they equipped them in such a way that they became mature, and it says in the passage, so that they won't be tossed around and deceived by false teachers. That was very, very much a danger and still is. We see this in Acts 20, 27 through 31. Uh, Paul, when he recognized he would never see the Ephesian elders, the leaders of that church, the church at Ephesus, when he realized he would never see them again, the one thing he wanted to make sure he reminded them, he says, I want to remind you that for three years, day and night, I did not stop warning you that there would be false teachers who would come from your very midst, right from your church. The false teachers are going to come out, and you need to be aware of that because you're not, you need to become mature so that you don't fall for these lies and these false teachings. So it's very, very critical that we preach God's word to mature God's people, okay? So that's my job is to help feed you in such a way that you become mature. So hurry up. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. All right. So what we see here is this is, is done especially through expository preaching. God's good leaders share God's word, not their own. But also good leaders are worth emulation, worth emulating. Look at what how the verse finishes in verse 7. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. So here we see that their authority comes from what they teach and how they live out what they teach. If your leaders aren't living out what they preach, don't follow them. Okay? They're supposed to be following Jesus. We'll see that in just a moment. And then you follow Jesus, but you follow your leaders as you see them giving a good example of how to be, uh, to follow Jesus as well. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, Follow me as I follow Jesus, or imitate me as I seek to imitate Jesus. Now, that's, that's a pretty strong thing that, uh, that leaders have to follow, right? We're supposed to be following Jesus, and as you watch us as good examples, then you follow Jesus by following our example. You see that? So this is his design, and he starts it out, remember your leaders. But then in this middle section of the sandwich, verses 8 through 16, we see Jesus is in charge. And, uh, and, and all the way through this middle section, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the anchor. 
If the leaders are not following Jesus and his word, they're not worth submitting to. Notice he continues to portray Jesus as wonderful. He is the perfect leader. Thomas Watson speaks of Jesus and he says, Jesus Christ is the sum and quintessence of the gospel the wonder of angels, the joy and triumph of saints. The name of Christ is sweet. It is as music in the ear, honey in the mouth, and a cordial at the heart. Jesus. And this section is all about him. It begins in verse 8. We see that Jesus is immutable. That means he's unchangeable. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, at first, this almost appears like he's just switched topics. He's talking about leaders, then all of a sudden he's talking about Jesus being the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. It almost seems like he switched topics. He is not. The whole thing, as we see, fits together. And here we see that Jesus is the one we're ultimately to follow because he is unchangeable. Now, what does that mean, to be immutable or unchangeable? We want to know what does it mean and why is that important. First of all, Max Anders helps us. What What does it mean? He says, all change must be for the better or for the worse. If God is perfect, he could not change for the better. You cannot improve on perfection. And if he is perfect, he cannot change for the worse for the same reason. If God ever changed or ever could change, we could never be sure of anything. So God loves us today, so what? If he could change, he might not love us tomorrow. God cannot change because his very nature is unchanging. Therefore, he can never be wiser, more holy, more just, more merciful, more truthful, nor less. Nor do his plans and purposes change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Apostle James writes that God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, James 1.17. Malachi writes that I am the Lord, I do not change, Malachi 3.6. And so we see that... God is unchanging, but our passage here says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is also immutable because Jesus is God. And he's the unchanging one, the one we can trust. So why is this important? J.I. Packer makes a statement that I think is very critical. Listen to what he says. But the thought brings a searching challenge, too. If our God is the same as the God of the New Testament believers, how can we justify ourselves in resting content with an experience of communion with him and a level of Christian conduct that falls so far below theirs? If God is the same, this is not an issue that any one of us can evade. It's a question we should be asking. If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever... And in the Bible days, he did miracles. He set the captives free. He did incredible things. Why wouldn't he do them now? So we seek God. Do it again, God. 
I don't want to settle for anything less. Now, I can't make a miracle happen, but I can seek God, and if he's capable, he says he wants to do these kinds of things. He has not changed. That's good news. As we seek the Lord, this should be a part of our prayers as we're seeking God's revival. Oh, God, do it again. We want to see you stretch out your hand and heal the sick. We want to see you speak into lives of people who are set in bondages, all kinds of different things, and set them free. We want to see this kind of stuff again. Do it again, God. Because it says in this passage, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's worth following. Now, as we walk through the passage, in verse 9, we see that Jesus is better than legalism. Look at what verse 9 says. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not benefited. He's better than legalism. You see, what he's referring to here is a form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was really, really big in the second century, but there was an incipient Gnosticism even within the first century where they began to think that the physical realm was evil and only the spiritual realm was good. And so to enjoy the physical realm somehow tainted us. And so the really spiritual people, they came up with these food regulations and other things that really, as according to this passage, really did not benefit them because the Bible is opposed to Gnosticism. I'll show you another example of this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5, we see similar thing being discussed where some were adding to Scripture. They were adding rules and regulations not found in the Bible, Uh, rules and regulations that sounded spiritual, but in actuality were not. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, that is in the last days is another way of translating that, so especially in the end of time, some will depart from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, you know what this means in the Greek? In the Greek, this means that some will pay attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. Through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So here we see that there was these these people embracing these forms of Gnosticism, making these rules, saying you can't get married in certain instances. Uh, For instance, priests can't get married. And then they demand abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with gratitude. Some say you can't eat meat. Others say you can't eat meat on Fridays. All those religious rules never found in Scripture are adding to Scripture. And according to our passage, it says it doesn't benefit anybody. 
seems religious, but it's not. Jesus, his plan is better than legalism. Now, Christians are often drawn to esoteric things not covered in Scripture. For some reason, we're just like drawn to these weird, bizarre things, you know, anything at all. This is what's going to really bring you life if you take this, eat that, do this, whatever. Not found in Scripture. Listen, Jesus is the one who brings us real life. He's the one who sets us free. We don't need all that other stuff. And I'm not going to mention some of the thoughts that came in my head because I'll probably make some of you mad. So you just imagine what I'm talking about, all right? The Bible teaches that we're strengthened by grace. Did you see that? For it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations since those who observe them have not benefited. Grace. Then we see in verses 10 through 13, Jesus provides a better sacrifice. By the way, isn't this what our author in the book of Hebrews has been doing throughout the whole book? He's been talking about Jesus. He's been exalting Jesus. He's been showing us how incredible he is, that it's all about him. And here we see that he provides a better sacrifice, something that he's been saying throughout the book as well. Look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. Now here we see that Jesus provides a better sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, which the Old Testament sacrifices described here were only a type. They pointed to Jesus' death on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice because Jesus died paying the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins, completely providing absolute forgiveness as we heard so wonderfully in the presentation of the Lord's Supper when Danielle spoke. Okay, that's what Jesus did, this perfect sacrifice. And just like in the Old Testament sacrifices, they would take the animal's body and burn it outside of the camp. He says, Jesus went outside of the camp. He died outside of the walls of Jerusalem and was crucified for us. And he says, so let us join him, bearing his disgrace. Because the superior sacrifice is worth the humiliation. I am going to follow Jesus no matter what anybody says. I don't care if I look stupid. I don't care if I'm ridiculed. I am going to follow Jesus because he blows everybody else away. (laughs) He's awesome. His sacrifice was perfect. I'm going to go outside the camp and follow him in his humiliation. And that's what we see here. He is the one worth following. Our pleasure, our own personal happiness cannot be our central goal. When it is, we don't get it. It's all about him, but when we just surrender totally to him, oh man, is it worth it. (laughs) 
We experience his presence. Life does become meaningful. It's incredible. And sometimes even get to see a miracle, as he says in his book. So he provides a better sacrifice. He provides a better home. Look at verse 14. He says, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Now, this emphasis found in Hebrews, found in the general letters in general, uh, James, First and Second Peter, Hebrews, they all have this focus that this world isn't our home. We seek the one to come. He already said in chapter 11, verse 13, He said, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. We are temporary residents on the earth, foreigners, it says. We see this same idea in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter 2 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Uh, strangers and exiles, Donald Carson says, we are to take this designation seriously by exhibiting a lifestyle different from yet attractive to the hostile world in which we live. We're strangers We're aliens, we're exiles. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Most people are familiar with verse 20, but I want to see the context in verse 21 because it's important for us to understand what he is and what he isn't saying here, okay? He starts out in Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we see that, we recognize my citizenship is not here. My citizenship is in heaven. But we don't want to become Gnostics. Remember, we already talked about that. Gnosticism's bad. The idea that, oh, we just have to experience this spiritual thing where we leave our bodies and we just kind of float up in the sky somewhere. That's not God's ultimate design for us. In fact, that very verse, it says we eagerly wait for a Savior from there. In other words, he's coming back with a home. That's our citizenship. That's our home. But it is going to be a physical home. Look at verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. See, ultimately, we get to have a resurrected body just like Jesus' resurrected body. When he was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those, he received a physical body, but it was awesome, okay? We get, at the rapture, we get a new body, a physical new resurrection body that's gonna be awesome no more creaks and joints and pains and that kind of stuff all right and uh but it's a physical body it's we're going to live he's coming back he's going to set up his kingdom here a refurbished earth that's our ultimate design we were physical beings we will always be 
physical beings. And that's a good thing. So we see this, but, but this world here that's been wrecked, it's not our home. And that has to be our mindset. We can enjoy this world as God allows us to, but we don't focus on this world. So he provides a better home, and he calls for better worship. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Hebrews 13. He says, Therefore, through him let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. See, we don't offer sacrifices of animals anymore. Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But we do offer these sacrifices of praise and of service to do what is good and to share. That's koinonia, to experience fellowship in sharing as we serve. So he calls us to this better worship of praise and service. Why is it good to praise God? Because he is worthy. That is the only answer. Not because I get goosebumps. Not because I like the certain style of music. But because he is worthy. And when we get a glimpse of Jesus in all of his awe and wonder, you can't help but worship him. In fact, if you have a problem, if you struggle with praise... You need a bigger vision of who Jesus is because once you see him, you're like, wow. By the way, that is a form of praise. Wow. Okay. Okay. Because it exalts him. You are amazed by him. That's worship. And you can do that if the band is fantastic or if it's a guy singing out a key. It doesn't matter. You're there to worship God. And we see this better worship that he's called us to. Now, that's the meat. Third piece of bread. There's a second piece of bread of the sandwich, right? Obey your leaders who follow Jesus. It begins by remember your leaders. Now here he says, obey your leaders. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. So obey your leaders who follow Jesus. That's what we see here. They had a clear conscience. They're wanting to conduct themselves honorably. They, they're seeking to follow Jesus so we, uh, and seeking to minister to us, to the people, and so we follow them. So obey your leaders. God has given a formal structure in the local church. We see this structure. It is the structure of leadership with the elders and then the deacons underneath them. Those are the leaders of the church. He shows this in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus chapter 1, in Philippians 1 verse 1. All of these show this basic structure of the local church. That is God's plan. This is why the Bible 
calls us to participate in a local church. Parachurch organizations are good, okay? What is a parachurch organization? That's a group that isn't a church, but it's doing God's work outside and actually is supplementing and helping the church, uh, like the Pregnancy Resource Center, PRC, or, or CREW, uh, you know, the ministries to other college ministries, those kinds of things. Those are all parachurch organ- organizations, and they are good, but they cannot be the substitute for the local church because they lack the pastoral care of a leadership we voluntarily submit to. So God gives us this design, and the local church, it's not perfect though, right? But if you have leaders who are seeking to follow God, they're sincerely seeking to live for him, they're preaching the word and seeking to live out the word, then the followers of the church follow their leadership. It specifically says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Submission is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We see it in God's plan for the marriage, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Submission is not a bad thing when the leadership is seeking to follow God. And so, and submission is always voluntary. You can't force people to submit. Once you try to force them, then it's no longer submission. Submission is always voluntary. But here we see, we submit to our leaders. Good leaders feed and protect the followers. That's how this description here of them, they keep watch over your souls so that as those who will give an account, as leaders, we're going to have to give an account for how we watched over your souls, especially how did we feed you and nourish you in the things of God and help you become mature believers. He says that's what we're supposed to be doing, keeping watch over your souls. We're going to give an account so, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief. <laughs> What would that, that would be unprofitable to you, okay, is what he's saying here. So we, good leaders, feed and protect the followers. We see this in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, a great passage for that. And then he finishes, pray for your leaders. Pray for us. We're at the front of the battle like the princes of old. We need your prayers for protection. In this whole passage, we see that we don't follow, we don't blindly follow our leaders. We follow the God-given leadership as they follow the leader of leaders, Jesus. Now, God's plan is brilliant. Are we in it? Are we seeking that plan? Do we want to fulfill that? And I have one last thing, and I um, felt like God gave this to me, so we're not going to do our normal song with the band coming up afterwards. Instead, I'm going to play a song on video. And you can look at the words if you want, but they're really not very many words, okay? What I want to encourage you to do is just worship. Silently. You don't even have to sing this song. Worship God. I want you to picture 
a glorious day when Jesus comes back. When he comes riding on the horse through the clouds. I want you to picture that. And I would highly encourage you, kneel before God. It's an act of submission to him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. To kneel before him in an act of worship and just listen to the song. You may even want to get out in the aisles, you know, as the Holy Spirit leads you, of course. God does call us to physically, because we're not Gnostics, we're not just cerebral Christians, to physically use our bodies in worship. We raise our hands, we clap, we shout, we sing, we dance, we kneel before the Lord. So let's listen to this song and worship.
I don't know if I've ever listened to that song without crying. He's coming back. And when he comes back, every knee will bow, whether they want to or not. But we have the choice, the privilege to surrender to him now. pray that God would bless each and every one of you this week with such experiences of his glory and tastes of his goodness. May he bless you.